This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your hosts for today are Summit Racing's Al Noe and Kirk Heinbuck with special guest, professional drag race instructor, Frank Holly. Here we go. Welcome to the Summit Racing Equipment On All Cylinders Podcast. I am Al Noe with Summit Racing Equipment and joining me is my friend and co-worker, Kirk Heinbuck. We have a very, very special guest today who is going to tell us everything we need to know about being a successful drag racer. So Frank, how did you become a professional driver? How'd you get the opportunity? Tell, tell us about going way back in time and just thinking about uh, when did that happen? Where did it happen? How did it happen? Well, I think that's probably a book. Nine or 10 years old, my mom would make a peanut butter sandwich, put it in a paper bag, drive me to the drag strip, give me $3, I'd head into the pit area and spend the day. And she'd tell me, you'll be back here at five o'clock. Uh, I don't care if they've run the final round or not. Uh, or you're not coming again. And and so I'd go back and, and uh, at any rate, today they'd call child services, right? Uh, <laughs> but what happened as a result of that is I was hanging around all the racers all the time and they'd see this kid and they'd, hey, weren't you here last week? I said, yeah, I'm here every week. And, and so they'd have me come in and start to, well, here, clean this up or help me with this. So that's how I got to know a lot of the local racers. And uh, and my dad, uh, this is a funny story. So my dad was got involved in the sport because I did. And uh, we got to know a lot of local racers in town. So we would go to their shops. Uh, keep in mind back, uh, this is London, Ontario, Canada. There were nine top fuel cars out of, out of that one town back then. So things were a lot different than they are now. And we'd go around from day or in the evenings and visit the different racers shops and, and just hang out. And one day, my, my dad was talking with a, a friend that actually helped us a lot early on, Herbie Rogers. He passed away several years ago, but he raced fuel cars and alcohol cars. My dad said, well, we you know can't hardly afford to take this kid to the track all the time. And Herbie said, well, here's the deal. He said, St. Thomas Dragway, they need a track photographer. And you guys ought to go over and, and get a job as a photographer. And then they could pay you to come rather than you paying them to go. And my dad said, I remember this well but we're not photographers. And Herbie told my dad, well, they don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I learned a lot early in life. And and so we went to uh, uh, the track management uh, and told him we were photographers and, and, and he hired us and he was going to give us $25 a day uh, to come over and take pictures. So we thought we'd hit the lottery and, uh, but now we needed the camera because we were photographers and so we went out and bought a little 35 millimeter Yashica camera. But what would happen is we couldn't wait to get the stuff processed, the film, because, you know, the pictures of wherever you took them to the drugstore. So we ended up uh, building a little dark room in our basement and uh, we would take all the pictures and we would go home and we would uh, print all the photographs. And then we got little five by seven envelopes. And I wrote stories about what happened on the weekend and we'd put them in and sent them out to all the trade papers and local papers. And that really turned into something pretty good because I think I was 13 or 14 years old and got a three page spread in Hot Rod magazine uh, wow. with photographs. I wrote the story and, and it was on Barry Poole's pro stock car. At any rate, so I turned 16 years old and Herbie's talking one day to my dad. And he says, so you're going to let the kid race? My dad said, well, I ain't got any money to race. He said, oh, we'll get you fixed up. And and so we bought, which I, here's the disclaimer. Don't anybody do what I'm going to tell you we did. We went and bought an old front motor top fuel car and we didn't know how to work on cars. I didn't know how to drive it. We didn't know anything, but we bought this thing. 
And I, that's what I started driving was a front motor top fuel car when I was a kid. And it was horrifying. It was disastrous. Um, we were on fire all the time. I don't think we ever made it to the finish line. I was still in high school and I would go back to school with my, I'm not lying, with my arms bandaged up from fires that we had. It was kind of a badge of honor because they're like, what, dude, what happened to you? I said, like, fire in the lights at 200. So um, at any rate, that was my training. And and so we just had a few of those cars. We we ended up getting in alcohol funny cars because they were racing for as much money. You didn't have to work on them. Did that for several years. Uh, were pretty successful. Ended up crashing the last two cars I had. My parents had a second mortgage on the house. We, I, we didn't know what we were going to do. And I said, well, I'm going to just, I'm, uh, that's it. I'm, I'm going to get a job and, and racing. I loaded up my pickup truck. Uh, I went to LA and I said, I'm going to get a job racing, not driving, just, just racing. And so I went to every big shop, uh, every big race team in LA. Uh, I was sleeping in my truck in, in Denny's parking lots uh, and, and while I was doing this. And uh, I tried to get a job and I told him, listen, I can, I can do the clutch. I can do the bottom end. I can do the heads. I can uh, drive your truck. I can grease your truck. I can wash your truck. Every one of them said, listen, uh, you, all you want to do is be a driver. And we know that. And uh, we're, we're not going to hire you because the moment you get an offer to drive a car, you're going to leave us and you're going to go drive the car. And I looked at them very sincerely. I said, gosh, no, I would never do that to you. And while I'm saying that, I'm thinking, wow, this guy's pretty sharp because as soon as I get an offer, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the claims to fame I had here on, on getting not, not a, uh, offered a job is I went to Gary Beck, who at the time was winning everything in the world in his top field team. And I, I didn't know Beck, but he knew me and I knew him, of course, by reputation. And he turned me down. And years later, I found this out. The Beck told me, he says, you know what? He said, within about an hour uh, of turning you down, he said, because I really didn't know who you were or anything. He says, another young kid came in looking for a job. And I told him to get lost, too. And that was Ron Tobler. And, and he wow. and says, so I turned down Frank Holly and Ron Tobler in the same day. <laughs> so I was, I was headed I, I, six months sleeping in the truck, literally. And I was headed back uh, to Canada and I'd called my mom from a payphone in Denver in a snowstorm collect. Now there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that do not know what a collect phone call is, okay. but uh, I did. And my mom said, uh, a guy named Austin Coyle just called and said, you'd send him a resume. He wants to talk to you about driving his car. And of course, that starts another few hours of a story. But anyway, that's 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 the, the, the concise version of how I got my first real job uh, racing a nitro funny car. And it was with just an incredible team. That's awesome. That's like a story. That's a Cinderella story right there. Yeah, Frank, we're going to follow this up with the book of Frank Holly's You Can't Make This Stuff Up because <laughs> that is just incredible. I mean, of all people, too, to have him call you, you know, that that is just it's awesome. Yeah, a, a good friend of mine, Simon Menzies, who was an a really good alcohol funny car racer, and he was general manager at uh, Simpson Products at the time. He had contacted me or talked to me in California. I think Simon went into Denny's and saw me sleeping in the truck and woke me up one morning is how this happened. Uh, and, and he said, you know, uh, Pete Williams um, is, is not going to drive the Chi-Town Hustler car next year. And, and I just heard that. And you might want to try and get a job there. I said, you know, it's Austin Coyle and the big team and they're not going to hire me. He said, well, you never know. 
And so Simon was the guy that, that gave me the lead. And then, of course, I put together a, a resume and typed it out, put it in an envelope and found out his address and sent it and called everybody I knew in Chicago and said, if you know Austin, tell him I'm really a good guy and, and he ought to give me a chance. And uh, literally on, the, on that phone call, and let me just finish up with a phone call in the snowstorm in Denver. I called Austin back. But I, I couldn't call Austin Collect because that'd be kind of tacky looking for a job. So I don't know where. I think I went through my truck. I found as many quarters as I could. This is, this is the truth, guys. I found as many quarters as I could. And I started putting them in. And I called Austin. Everybody knows Austin. He's really dry, really laid back, kind of thoughtful in his conversation. And we talked for a few minutes. And he said, well, you know, if you want to come to Chicago, he says, I wouldn't mind talking to you about driving a car, maybe. And I had, I looked at the shelf at the payphone. I had like, I don't know, five quarters left. And I thought, I, I, need, to, I need to tighten this up because I, I got like whatever, it was two minutes left. And I said, listen, I'll, I'll be honest with you, because I was trying to act cool, right? It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. I might consider driving the Shy Town Hustler. And I said to him, listen, I, I, I'm going to tell you what's going on. I've been sleeping in my truck for six months. I don't have enough money to talk to you for another four minutes. I got about two. Uh, I'm homeless. And, and I can't come to Chicago to talk to you about driving the car. But if you tell me I can drive the car one time, one weekend, one match race, I'll be there in 48 hours. I'll help you. You know, it was still in the winter. I'll help you put the car together. You don't need to pay me anything. Let me just drive one weekend and then we'll see what happens. And there's this big pause. And I thought, well, I killed that deal, right? <laughs> and, and he says, uh, yeah, be here in 48 hours. I'll let you drive once. And that was it. And, and I, I went to Chicago, met him at the shop. He told me that the only reason he was offering me the job is they had kind of run on hard times. They had no, not enough money to hire a good driver. So they were going to hire me. And they, uh, they heard that, uh, you know, I was fast enough and could win, but I, I wrecked stuff occasionally. And, and if I scratched his car, he'd kill me. And I, I worked there for several weeks. We went to uh, US 30 Dragway, ran a two-car match race against Kenny Safford in, in the Grand Spalding Dodge car. And we won three straight. And there was no, I'd never driven a nitro funny car in my life. Uh, I'd driven top fuel cars, I'd driven alcohol cars, never drove one. Austin gave me no instructions whatsoever. Anyway, so we, he, we all go to dinner somewhere afterwards. We finish dinner and everybody's leaving. Huh, I guess that was my weekend. I don't, he hasn't said anything. I don't know if I'm like supposed to come to work tomorrow or that was it. So I got him in the parking lot. I said, well, the deal was one weekend. You let me do it. And I drove what do we do now? And he says, uh, show up at the shop at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. He says, you can drive next weekend too. And so I thought, okay. And then the next weekend, the same thing happened. I said, well, am I driving next weekend? He goes, yeah, you can drive one more week. So the funny part of this story is three years later, we end up winning the NHRA world championship. I'm on stage uh, at the banquet. Uh, I'm accepting the trophy and all of that. And it occurred to me, literally out of the blue that Austin had never hired me. So I, I told that story at the banquet that night and, and I asked him in the audience, you know, so have I got the job? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you can, you got the job. It took a week by week for about three years, but uh, anyway, so it, it's all funny stuff. That's awesome. That is so great, Frank. Frank, is there anything when you look back that you would change 
absolutely everything I would change. <laughs> I wouldn't blow up any of the stuff I did. I wouldn't have crashed any of the cars I crashed. I wouldn't have been late all the times I was late. I wouldn't have red-lighted all the times I red-lighted. Yeah. <laughs> the list goes on, right, Frank? I, yeah. I changed everything. Uh, uh, there's more stuff I would like to have done differently than I did correctly. But I, I think to be serious about the question, I did everything with enthusiasm and I did it as best I could with the knowledge I had at the time. And I was totally committed. There was a point in my life where I thought, if I can't be a drag race driver and make my living doing this, then you can just shoot me because there's nothing else in the world that matters that much to me. I think that that is one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm a little OCD about stuff. Once I get hooked on something, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. I'm just stuck to it. And I did that for, you know, many, many years. So, but, but that's, that's organic. I mean, I didn't set out saying, well, I'm going to make up my mind and do this. That was just how I was, was wired that I had such a tremendous desire and network, uh, you know, there, there's something that everybody knows is important no matter what you're doing. Meet as many people as you can. Uh, don't piss people off. Be nice. You, you, you know, I, I think there was a lot of times, well, I know there was earlier in my career where I was pretty aggressive. Taken out of context, it sounds wrong because they say, well, you've got to be aggressive to win races. But it was a little over the top. What, what I preach now to people and what we work with a lot of the pros and, and all our new drivers and the stuff that I've learned is you don't need to be at that level of angst. Uh, 24-7, and you don't need to be that aggressive, and you can still win a lot of races and maybe win more. And so that kind of whole personal thing, I think, but maybe I wouldn't have ended up where I am now if I hadn't hadn't done all that. So it's, it's, it's hard to say. When in your career did you decide to open the drag racing school? How, how'd that idea come together? How'd you make it happen? That sounds probably a little more thoughtful than it really was. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Anyway, so the story is we're, uh, I'm driving the Chi-Town car. We're staying the winners in California because the, the first and last race of the year, we'd run, you know, the finals. Back then it was at Orange County, and, and then the first race of the year was at Pomona. And rather than go back to Chicago, we decided to stay out there. And uh, Austin was really, continued to be really good friends with uh, Russell Long, who was uh, a really good funny car driver and drove for Austin. And Russell had his own house down in Mission Viejo. Uh, and so we used to stay there over the winter, and it was uh, quite the experience for a young kid from a farm in Canada to be staying in Southern California at Russell's house with 20 or 30 people coming and going. All Anyway, it was a very, very exciting times, to say the least, and I'll leave it there. But um, I, I always liked motorsports. I like cars, I like engines, I like going fast, I like the discipline of it, I like the accuracy of, of, of the sport. And uh, back in my head somewhere, I always thought, man, I bet you I could have been an IndyCar driver. And so the Jim Russell British School of Motor Racing was uh, operating at Riverside Raceway, which is now gone. They had Formula Ford. So uh, I had saved some money and I, I, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go try my hand at road racing. So I went out to uh, the Russell School at Riverside and took their regular two-day Formula Ford program and, and loved it. Of course, I thought I was the star of the class, although I didn't tell anybody that because I'm a pretty good driver. And so I went back and did some lapping days, they call it, which is practice. And then I went and drove in some of their school races. And that's when I realized I was going down the front 
the S's they call them on the front straightaway at Riverside. And it's, it's some S's and they're off camber stuff. And anyway, it's, it's kind of like a sketchy area to drive real fast. And I remember going through there thinking um, I might crash this thing and having like a 14 year old kid pass me on the outside. And I realized, don't quit your day job. Like, you're not that good at this. <laughs> and, uh, I did a few races, realized, like, literally, like, I should have started when I was five, uh, you know, if I wanted to do this. And, and that was the end of my pursuit of road racing or IndyCar racing. But what it did do is I thought, wow, there's nobody teaching anybody how to drag race. Now, at the time, the only racing schools of any merit in the country, uh, Skip Barber and Russell, Bondurant was starting his program, but they were all road race programs. Bondurant had sedans and Barber and Russell had Formula Fords. That, that was it. So we were the first people ever to have a different type of racing school. There were no stock car schools. So I thought, uh, wow, maybe somebody should have a drag racing school. And what I thought is, okay, what would we start with? I mean, we're starting with a blank piece of paper. I thought, well, you know, I drove nitro cars my whole life. So what would be a good little beginner car, you know, for somebody to learn in? And I thought alcohol funny cars, that'd be fun. So we built a couple alcohol funny cars. You guys aren't laughing yet, but we built a couple alcohol funny cars. And if you had a credit card and a driver's license, we let you try and drive them. Nice. Uh, wow. How, how do you think that turned out? Probably not well. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> little, little sketchy. Uh, sketchy. So I realized that's a bad idea. And, and so I learned expensive lessons, by the way. So we, we ended up getting some super comp car. And, we, you know, so we evolved from that point. But uh, funny, funny story, because there's, there's so many funny stories. My wife and I, Lana, uh, we've done everything together together. Uh, we thought, well, we need cars would be, if you're going to have a driving school, cars would be good, but we didn't have any money. So I put a little package together and went around to a number of the racers I knew that were uh, quite well off and said, hey, would you like to invest in this company? Here's what I'm thinking about doing. Here's a prospectus and here's how you're going to get your money back. And, and I went to a number of them. I, I didn't get a great, it was kind of like a, they were being it was a courtesy kind of thing. Like they were being nice, listening to me because we were friends and they knew me, but nobody said, my God, this is the next Netflix stock. I got to buy into this. And, and Amato, okay, was one of the guys I went to. And I knew Joe well for years, racing all the alcohol cars and stuff with him. Joe says to me, well, you know, I, I'll give you some money, but I don't know if, if anybody wants to do this or, or not. You, you know, you need to find out if anybody wants to do it. And I said, how would I do that? I said, I don't have any cars. I don't have a business. I don't have a, we have nothing. And he said, this likens back to getting the job as a photographer. He says, well, the customers don't know that. <laughs> and, and, and he helped me. And if Joe hears about this, he's heard this story before and it's true. So he can't get mad at me. But he said, well, just, just start the business. Like, just like you're going to run it. And so um, we kind of devised this plan. So we printed up some brochures and uh, had pictures, not of our cars, because, of course, we didn't have any cars. And I wrote some stuff. And then we got uh, a P.O. box. We got some business cards. Lan and I were renting a little house in Gainesville, Florida at the time. And we put a desk in a spare bedroom. And we got a telephone line. You needed a telephone line, unlike today. And then we sent out press releases to everybody. And we've got a drag racing school and you can come and drive funny cars. 
what what happened was we were inundated with calls and letters again this pre-internet stuff right so that we actually would go to the p.o box and get stacks of letters out and there were people in there that were, were were putting checks in the mail. And so I called them out. Of, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks. We had $25,000 in deposits. And, and I called them and I said, my God, we got all these deposits. And Joe said, God, don't spend the money. He said, <laughs> he says, now we know there's an interest. And, and, and he really was just an awesome guy at helping me through this because he's such a sophisticated business person. So what we were saying, and this is not a lie, is we were telling the people on the phone, they said, well, we'd love you to come and drive the funny car, but we can't get you in for six months. And we never told them why we couldn't get them in for six months. And that was, we had no cars or no business, but uh, that we can't get you. And they said, that's fine. Just get me on the calendar. And so we, uh, first thing we did was hire uh, Ronnie Swearingen, who was a pretty well-known crew chief for the years. And he was out of work and got a shop built at the racetrack in Gainesville. And we bought parts and cars. And because at that point, bunch of the other investors, uh, Billy Meyer, Gene Snow, a lot of names people would know actually helped me get started by giving me some money and, and bought some shares in, in our program. And we worked a hundred. Now, when I say we worked, these were 12, 14 hour days. They weren't eight or 10. Uh, we worked 189 days straight, getting everything put together, uh, ready to go to run our first class. Again, that's probably a little more information than everybody needs, but that's that's how we got started. And that was a long time ago. Frank, who who have you instructed? Who who did you have that uh, was just an exceptional student? And then who may have been uh, a bit challenging? Everybody's different. Uh, not everyone needs to be a race car driver or should be a race car driver. Uh, and I think that the school is is really a great environment to answer that question for you because there's a lot of people that think they like stuff. They may think they like boats until they get on one and they get seasick. I think it's really a good opportunity. We try and present to people, and this is not a sales pitch, but it's a really controlled environment. The only people that are going to be there are either driving the cars like you are or they work there. We don't holler at anybody. We uh, teach each person at their own level. And what it does, because people will, will ask, well, 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 I know if, I, if I'm going to be a good driver after I go through your school, I said, oh, you'll, you'll answer your own question. And, and you don't even need me to tell you. Uh, you'll, you'll realize that, gosh, this is way more than I, I expected. I don't think I want to devote this much time, money, energy, and effort to being good at this. Or uh, I've just wrecked my life. There's nothing I want to do other than buy a bunch of Summit parts and build a race car. You know, it answers questions for people. And I suggest to folks, listen, before you go build a faster car or maybe you got an 11-second car and you want to drive an eight-second car uh, or you've got an eight-second car and you want to drive a six-second car or before you make that leap, why don't you come on down and do it? You'll get a lot of other stuff out of the program far beyond driving the car which is hard to describe to folks, but, but it'll answer questions for you. Uh, do you have a natural aptitude? Do you like this? You don't like this? So that's one of the things. As far as the gifted people, I don't like to use the word gifted, but clearly it is an innate skill that some people have that others don't. Yeah, we, get, we see those people all the time. We've had folks that have never been in a race car before I'm stunned. I, I don't say that to them because we're, I'm really big on trying to be very level in, in our instruction and the way I interact with our students. I don't, I, I don't do any high fives. I don't do any attaboys. 
but by the same token, we don't uh, demean anybody or, or holler at them or make them feel bad. It's We really try and be as neutral as possible. We see them every week where I think you've never driven a car. Uh, you ought to pursue this because you're really good. And and there's lots of those folks out there. You know, I think the, the one thing too, Frank, that I didn't think I was going to take away from the classes, I learned a lot of mental exercises and things that, to be honest, that I learned from the class. And I still use some of those today and other things that I come across in life. It's more mental than physical. It's a great school. It's a great opportunity to learn. Well, and, and I appreciate you saying that, Kurt. Um, that's what I really get the kick out of with, with the students because what I found out uh, many years ago is there's a lot of people that knew a lot about the cars in our sport, and there didn't seem to be anybody that knew anything about the people in our sport as far as the human element. And so that became my my mission was to learn about that and why are good people good at stuff? What problems do we have? And a lot of the work that I did with the professionals over the years, I brought all of that stuff back into our classroom with the beginning drivers. And someone might think, well, why would the stuff that the professionals have trouble with be the same stuff that the new drivers would have trouble with? And it's because most people think of what I'd call the mechanics of driving, which means, you know, how do you stage and how do you steer the car and how do you do a burnout? How do you back up? What I'm talking about is the emotional uh, and psychological aspects of it. And if you think about it, we all have pressure to perform. Uh, we, we don't really like being judged by others. Uh, we don't want to screw up. Uh, we don't have uh, many opportunities to get this right. I have to prove this to myself and other people. So all of those things, if you think about it, the beginning driver, the first day at our school and the pro driver, they're exactly the same. It's just a different level. And so that's really the stuff that I really think I feel personally that I can contribute in the classes. There's, there's a lot of people that can tell you how to stage a car and, and how to drive a car, but I, I like to be able to do that and then bring all of the other uh, aspects of it into the class too. And, and when I get a compliment, I mean, Kirk just mentioned using some of the stuff uh, other places in life. And when I get a compliment from somebody or a comment, I should say, about something that has helped them somewhere in their personal life, their family life, relationships, work, uh, working with their employees, working for their bosses, anything outside of the sport. And they say, wow, the stuff you talk about in the class really, really helped me with this situation. That to me is is worth a lot. So Frank, when, when a student comes to your class, can you give us kind of a rundown of what they're going to expect? They walk into the class on day one and how, what kind of an itinerary is there? Where do you start? Where do you finish? Yeah, so uh, the structure of the day is kind of boring. We, we show up at eight uh, at 7.30. Uh, you know, we come in, we do about 45 minutes in, in the classroom to prep. We go outside. We get them fitted for driving equipment. Then they, uh, I get with them. We go walk through our first run on the starting line, talk about the cones and the stage lights and the beams and all that stuff. We go back. Uh, our instructors give them instruction on how to get in the cars, how to get out of the cars. We get all the drivers suited up. Uh, we get our first set of drivers in. We do blindfold tests with them. And then we start running. I'm describing one of our super comp or super gas classes. And a car will come out and they'll do a burnout backup stage, make a short run down the track. As soon as that car pulls off, we pull the second car out and they do the same thing. So we end up with kind of a rotation of cars, circle of cars, and that first car comes back and that driver gets out and the next driver gets in. And so we have a run order. Everything's very sequenced in, in our classes. 
the driver's names are on the run board. They know when they're driving. And after everybody makes a run, we go back into the classroom. We review all the runs on videotape. I talk to every single driver about their runs. We head back out. Some of the drivers are going to repeat that short run again. Some drivers are going a little further down the track. We repeat that process throughout the day. The end of the first day, we end up back in the classroom. And that's when I really start, uh, again, these lectures on how we think and act and behave and perform and what things in our lives can we change and what can't change and how to get rid of the stuff in our head that we can't change. And then we show up the next morning. It's a pickup of the, the lecture the night before. And we talk about how to put all this stuff into practice. We go back out and we start running cars again. So uh, that uh, if that sounds very regimented, uh, that's how we run our program. It's very regimented. Barring the unforeseen, we can tell you what we're doing at 2.30 in the afternoon on the first day and the second day. That's how we get it done. And by doing that, I think we're also demonstrating to our customers how important it is in their racing program to have a routine and to stick to it. Even if you do things a little differently than we do them, you've got to come up with a reason why you're going to do it differently and then rehearse that and practice that. And so our, our whole mission is, is about repeating and, and being very accurate with what, uh, with what you do. Frank, what tracks do you visit for the school? Yeah, so, of course, our home is in Gainesville, Florida. We start out the year, we go to Tucson, we go to Las Vegas. Uh, we stop in Houston on the way back. This year we went to uh, Bandemir's in Denver, uh, up to uh, Woodburn, Oregon. Joey Severance's track just south of there. And a lot of people know Joey Severance is world champion in alcohol dragster. Of course, do Indianapolis. Uh, we do Reading, Pennsylvania. And then uh, one of our popular stops in the middle of the year is uh, at Summit Motorsports Park. And then we, uh, in the fall, we're just getting ready. Uh, in a few days, we're headed back out to Bakersfield, California. It's going to be our first stop in Bakersfield in 20 years. Our guys get a lot of miles uh, under their belts uh, each year, and, and we, get, uh, we get a kick out of going different places and helping uh, new drivers get started in the sport. Um, we had a, one of our um, customers asked a question. So Jordan Walsh asked, what classes would you recommend for somebody who's got a mid-eight-second uh, turbo LS Fox body is, is particularly what he has. But for your school, Frank, is there a class that you would take that person and put them into where you think that would benefit them a lot? Or where, where would you go with that person? Well, each each type of car, I mean, is, is obviously driven differently. And we're stuck to a big block Chevy Power Glide Trans Brake car. But clearly, our, our, our super gas program uh, is where we can get you licensed down to seven and a half seconds. There's a lot of stuff. Of course, we teach you how to drive, but I, I'm, I'm going to harken back to the, the lectures that we spend time on. And I, I just have customers leave and go, hey, I love driving the car, but I actually got more out of the classroom than, than driving the car. So that's pretty hard to explain to anybody. But yeah, if, if you've got a, a, a fast door car, even if it's not exactly uh, set up the way our car is, the way you handle a car, the way you handle yourself, how you do the burnouts, how you back up, how you stage the car, just so many things. And we go over not just psychological stuff, but a lot of physiological stuff, nervous system, brain and muscles. Uh, we spend a, a fair amount of time on eyes, how your eyes work and how your brain works and a lot of really cool things people don't know about their vision. So there's a lot of mechanical stuff stuck in those lectures as well. And we try and make them fun. I don't really tell jokes as much as I just tell funny stories. During it. So it's, it's not an arduous thing where you're, you're back in school sitting there with a pen and paper uh, trying to take notes. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's our program. If you want to race a door car, come on down and, and uh, 
take that. Uh, we can get you an NHRA competition license. And I can't imagine you would be disappointed, even if you're not, the way you're driving our car isn't exactly the way you're going to drive your car. A lot of the, the stuff's transferable. Hey, hey, Frank, do you still offer the class where a racer can actually bring his car to uh, the track and, and you can kind of give them some guidance based on their own vehicle? Yeah, and, and uh, we, we do, we call it bring your own car. I came up with that term myself. I thought it was pretty creative. Um, <laughs> uh, you can do that. Uh, we almost every class we run, we've got at least one or two people that have chosen to do that. The one thing that you know we are not able to spend any time with them on their car mechanically. That that's not what we do. We allow you to bring your car and take the the same program that everybody else has taken. Not to mean that we can't offer a little advice and Jimmy Montgomery that is one of our lead guys, was, uh, you know, one of the lead chassis builders for Undercover for years. He's very, very knowledgeable on car setup. And Jimmy, you know, he's fine to offer a little bit of advice, but it's not a car setup program. It's not to help you with your car. It's to help you learn all of the stuff that we teach, and you can drive your car if you'd like. And I'm not trying to talk people out of coming to the school, but it can be good and it can not be good. What What's the perfect scenario for that? A guy came a f- several years ago. He loved it. He got a super comp car. He bracket races it for years. He's doing real well with it. Little Bobby, his kids turning 16. He wants to get out of juniors. And rather than dad trying to teach him how to drive, he thinks, man, I like Frank. I'll just take, I'll just take the car back down there and let Frank teach him how to drive my car. That is perfect. In fact, last year, this is back to the me getting old part. We had two third generation drivers attend our school. You know, I remember specifically because these things stick with me talking to the kid in, in the morning and saying, you know what, your name's familiar. Did, did I teach your dad? And, and the kid said, yeah, and you taught grandpa too. And oh God, I just, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so th- that kind of thing works well where you've got a good proven car. What doesn't work well and, and we suggest people, listen, just come and drive our car. Is They bought this car. They bought some stuff from somebody else. They put it together. They don't know how it's wired. They started it once in the garage, and they bring it. I'm just telling you that rarely, rarely works out well. I personally feel bad because I feel like I want to help them, but we do not have the time uh, within the class to do that, and that's not what the program is. So I'm just saying if Unless you've got a really good proven car, just come and drive our cars. Our cars are set up well. They handle well. We know the cars well. They're reliable. Drive one of our cars and you can work on your car later. Frank, we've got a lot of customers that are weekly bracket racers. If you had a couple of tips, what would you tell them? That's a pretty broad question, of course. The first thing is, as far as your car and your equipment, buy the best possible stuff you can. And, and if that means maybe I can't uh, have a car as fast as I would like, that's fine. You're better off to have a slower car with better parts than just try and, you know, I bought this great big motor and this, this and, and, and everything runs like crap. Uh, you, you won't have any fun. You won't be successful. So make sure that you are, are within budget and you can buy the best possible equipment you can. Second thing is be way more accurate and analytical in, in your racing. Keep notes, keep a logbook, not just on track temperature, air temperature, what you were doing that day, what you did before the race, what you did after the race, what happened during the race. And in other words, have a lot more data that you can sit and look at. And a thought just popped into my head. 
I remember when uh, Spencer Eisenbarth and Ron Armstrong started Race Pack, and they were the two engineers, and Kenny Bernstein actually owned it, and incredibly bright guys, and they're going to have what everybody thought at the time, well, you're going to have computers, right? You're going to have computers, and they're just going to do all the work for you. And they said, no, like, it just tells you stuff. You know, it tells you what happened. It's basically a history machine, okay? It's a history book. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen. And your job is to take all that information and, and understand it and analyze it. So uh, it's the same kind of thing. Even if you don't have a race pack on your 11-second your car, pay a lot of attention to the detail because the people that are winning and doing well, they're detail-oriented. They're, they're not big-picture people. They're granular. That's probably the two things I'd suggest. Frank, looking at pro racing, if you could change anything today in professional drag racing, what would you suggest or what would you like to see different? Yeah, a lot. Uh, it's kind of hard to, to uh, you know, put the toothpaste back in the tube is what they say. So once sure. it's been done, it's hard to undo things. And so what what I'm going to say is, is like, well, that's worthless information because you can't undo it. But I think things got out of hand along the way because costs are always a problem. And NHRA does such a spectacular job of prepping the tracks now. Uh, and if it's not absolutely perfect, people are moaning. They talk about now the big thing is no prep racing, no prep. Boy, I'm, I'm on no prep racing. My God, we race nitro funny cars, there's no prep. I mean, <laughs> they used to, they'd have an oil down and, and then they'd put some rice hull ash over it and broom it it looked like it snowed in your lane and they'd go like, start it up. <laughs> we raced places where there were no guardrails. And I'll tell you at night in, in a top fuel car or funny, that grass and that asphalt's exactly the same color. Like you don't even know where the edge of the track is. I'm not suggesting that's good, but I'm saying we're, we're trying to make sure that nobody has any problems with anything. And now we've created the thing where that's the expectation. So that's the whole track thing, right? As far as the cars go, you know, the first time I, if I was running things, if I was running things, nobody ever asked me to run anything. But if I was running things, the first time I ever saw two mags, I go, what's that second mag for? And I said, well, it's got two spark plugs. I said, well, take one out and bring it back up here. The first time I ever heard a lockup clutch, uh, Austin Cole and I figured this out before. We never had any money to build anything, but we used to run and, and we had no, uh, I, I compliment Race Pack. I love them. We use their products. But before they had any analytics on the cars, the driver was really crucial because the driver was the only thing that gave you any input. That, the crew chief looking at the car and an ET slip, I would tell them, boy, I'll tell you, when this thing leaves and when we get out there a couple hundred feet, it just like rips through the clutch and it takes forever to catch back up again. If we could leave the starting line with a lot of clutch, with the clutch set normal, and then get out there a little bit and add some more clutch to it, we could run faster. And so we designed kind of on a Denny's napkin, the first ever lockup clutch. And it was a one stage wow. deal. And uh, we never had any time or money to do anything. So we're at Indy and Armstrong built one for Bernstein. We had two speed transmissions in the cars at the time. And whoever was racing Bernstein and qualifying got shut off for some reason. So Bernstein made a single and we heard the car leave. And we thought, has he got a three speed in that thing? walked over the pits, kind of peeked in there and had a two-speed. Well, he had a lock-up clutch. What you heard first was the clutch shifting, and then the second thing you heard was the transmission shifting. So that was the first lock-up clutch they ever had. Well, now they've got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to run your clutch system in its multiple stages. So here's my thoughts on that. 
I would have said, yeah, that's cool. You want to lock up clutch, give the driver a button, which is what we had. Okay. It was, it was a one stage. You had a, like a Lenko air shift button. You'd push it, boom, the cannon to move and uncover a couple more arms and away you go. Yeah. Give the driver a button. If you want a four stage clutch, give them three buttons. You, you get it. But don't start automating everything because as you automate it, the costs go up and the input from the driver goes down. Now, if they wanted a five-stage clutch, I'm telling you, there anybody probably could have shifted the thing right. So what you would have had is you would have had the best drivers be able to do it as opposed to automating it. So anyway, it's just a variety of things like that that I think if, uh, if we'd cut back on maybe a bunch of the stuff initially – and taking some of the automation out, it would have left a lot of the driver back in, and it would have kind of uh, prevented the costs from going as crazy as as they they've gone. Frank, I've I've got one question I've been wanting to ask you. What what do you think of the staging duels at the pro level? And most recently, we had Bruno Massel and Mason McGahey, who uh, neither one was going in, and I think they waited over two minutes, and then they got disqualified. And I know the NHRA has got to run their race and they've got to give the starter control over the race. But do you think staging duels are good and do you think they should be allowed? First, they're silly. You know, we, we teach drivers to come up with a routine. I spent one entire year when I wasn't driving, uh, working for a bunch of teams. And I got more data than anybody on the planet Earth ever had on this stuff. I was timing stage uh, events for fuel cars. And I did every single round of qualifying and eliminations and top fuel and funny car for an entire season, had all the data made graphs. And my time it was the first pre-stage light was zero. Second pre-stage light would be our first number. First stage lights, my third number and four stage lights, my last number. And what I wanted to see was patterns and speeds as to what the drivers were doing and what, and how they were doing it. Really interesting stuff if you're kind of geeky like I am and enjoy looking at all those graphs and numbers. But what we preach is is don't even play with that. What you do is you go up and, and you just uh, you have a routine. And if it's, you know, a second and a half or two and a half seconds after, you know, the guy pre-stages then, and you roll in, then just do it. Just do it every single time. One of two things is going to happen. There's only one of two things unless you're racing a four wide, okay, is you're going to be in first or you're going to be in second. So it's not all that creative. And so uh, th that's the only two things that are going to happen. Or there's a third possibility. You both stage at exactly the same time, which has happened. And actually, the first thought you have is, damn, what's the chances of that happening? And then the light comes on. But <laughs> let's, let's say that doesn't happen often. So if you don't uh, have a preference, if you have a preference, you're, you're, you're screwing yourself. Because if you want to be in first, well, sometimes you're not going to be. And then the first thought you're going to have is, damn, I wasn't in first. Well, you don't want to have that thought. Mm -hmm. If you have a preference that I want to be in second, well, then you start with the guy's not going to stage. Well, now you're getting all worked up because he's not going to stage and somebody's going to have to stage and maybe it's you. And now you're, you're upset because of that. You don't want to have those thoughts. So our, our entire premise is based on not having thoughts. Okay. Thinking is not good. And mm -hmm. so what you do is you just have a routine and the routine is like a robot and uh, you just drive like a robot and then no one can do anything else to you. So that's my thoughts on the stage thing. Now, if you have a situation where neither wants to stage, my first thought is, I don't give a crap. I'm going to go back to the hotel. Now, the, the, the problem with the NHRA, of course, you're not going to have that happen in the fuel cars because, my gosh, they're going to run out of fuel. They're going to blow up. NHRA, I understand their situation or, or their comments as, well, this is going to be unsafe because 
I'm not really sure why it's going to be unsafe, but they said it's going to be unsafe and that's a catch all for everything. It's going to be unsafe. My personal thought is I don't care what you do. Okay. I think it's silly, but if you're going to do it, I don't care. Here's the problem that everybody had with that. Nobody knew there was a rule. Okay. And the rule is that they can decide that's too long, shut you off and you're disqualified. That's the big dilemma. And that's why everybody was talking about that. If you just know what the rules are, it's okay. But if you don't know what the rules are, then it's really easy to get all flipped out and have all this dialogue on it. And if the rule is it's up to the starter, well, then, dude, like it's up to the starter. He's in charge. And if everybody knows the rule, I think that the the discussion's over. So, Frank, do you have uh, any classes, any new classes coming into the school? You got, you got several. You've got the adventure. You've got the super comp, super gas. What, what I think we learned, we had a pro mod class for a while. We had a pro stock class. This is several years ago. And, and driving pro stock cars, I don't want to say, I don't like the reference that one type of car is harder to drive than another. Because, you know, they could say, well, alcohol cars are harder to drive than nitro cars. Well, alcohol cars don't get to 600 feet, put two cylinders out and hit the wall. Okay, so I wouldn't say they're harder to drive. They're busier. There's more things the driver does to influence the performance of the car. So my reference to ProStock is it's one of the more you you have to be so technically correct. Just the starting line procedure. uh, Most people can't do well unless they rehearse it several hundred times. So we ran a ProStock school for two years and just canned it, just got rid of it. And the reason was, is, is the success rate of the customers was so low that it was what I'd consider not a good product. In other words, if nobody can use your product, I don't care how cool it is. It's not a good product. We had, uh, I, I had the great idea. I think it would have learned from alcohol funny cars when we first started, but I forget some of the lessons I learned. And I decided to have a pro mod school a few years ago. And we did that for a while. And then we said, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm not afraid to try things, but I think we've been doing it long enough, Kirk, that uh, we pretty much narrowed it down now where we can take people that have never driven before, put them in our adventure class. They're not going to get licensed, but they're going to have some fun and drive a dragster. We can move them into our super comp, super gas program which covers just a huge range. It's good to seven and a half seconds for an NHRA license, a huge range of cars, or we can move them up into the alcohol and the 200 mile an hour cars. But I, I think at this point in my career and our business, we've probably, we've tightened it up pretty good, Kirk. We're, we're about done with anything new. One last question. So outside of all the things you do professionally, what do you do to relax outside of uh, your normal work? Oh, gosh. We always liked boating and stuff. And, and uh, about three or four years ago, Lana and I built a house. Uh, I'm sitting in it now over on the Gulf of Mexico because uh, I'm not at the shop all the time. Uh, we've got uh, two boats in the backyard in the water. Uh, until a couple months ago, there were three. And Lana told me that was entirely too many boats. <laughs> but they're different. You got to have two. It's like a, a Corvette and a pickup truck. Uh, at any rate, so we, we like to boat and fish, just hang out in the water. Uh, we've got a golden retriever. And uh, she's like our grandkid. And uh, so we, we are enjoying life. Lana and I spent a lot of time together just visiting with family and, and hanging out and doing some fun stuff. Uh, people ask me in the class sometimes, uh, well, when are you going to retire? And, and I have. I tell them, literally, I have retired. I'm living down here. We're boating. We're hanging out, getting to do whatever we want. What else would I like to do in retirement? 
it's I like cars and and I like drag racing and and I like uh, people. So what a gig! I mean, I get to go hang out with a bunch of folks. We have common interests. Uh, I get to share a bunch of stuff with them. We laugh. We learn a lot of stuff together. We have a great time. If I retired next week, I'd go teach another class next week. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, just incredibly enjoyable. Want to thank you for being a great uh, representative of our sport, and uh, just can't thank you enough for giving us all your time today. All right, thanks, guys. Good to see you again. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast, powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.